That's a great update, and I would just like to say welcome to everyone. Welcome to worship at Grace. I want to begin today by sharing one of these exciting kingdom assignment stories. They continue to pour in, and if, if you're uh, uh, involved in an assignment and God is showing you how to use that money that you received, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so get those reports uh, in if you possibly can. This one is from a woman named Lucy. I'm going to read it to you. How did you feel when you first understood this assignment? She said, you know, honestly, I had mixed emotions. I was inspired by this sermon to show more compassion, but I did not like being given an assignment, you know? I did not volunteer for and having to report back about how the money was spent. I, I really prefer showing acts of kindness when led by the Spirit. I did, however, match the $100 I was assigned, which made the assignment a little more enjoyable. Now, how did you decide where to use the money? I actually did not get the orange envelope myself, but was handed the envelope by a friend I had brought to church with me that Sunday. I had met this young woman through an old friend who lives in Texas. And this old friend, with whom I've had no contact for many years, called me out of the blue and asked if I would host a young woman in her church who was seeking to adopt a newborn baby. The adoptive baby was to be delivered at a nearby hospital in Troy, in the Troy area. The day after I received my old friend's phone call, my newfound friend was at my doorstep with bags in tow. She was both anxious and excited about her mission to become a mom, and I was given the opportunity to walk beside her in this exciting and sometimes scary journey. About two weeks after my friend's arrival, she received a phone call from her social worker requesting she come to the hospital immediately. You see, the biological mom apparently had an emergency admission, and the fate of both the baby and the biological mom were at stake. As we raced to the hospital, I was certain I was going to meet my maker. But God was merciful, and we made it to the hospital with our lives intact. As we awaited the fate of both the mom and baby, my newfound friend and I prayed together requested God to spare both the mom and baby. Well, God really heard our prayers, and about an hour later, my new friend held her beautiful newborn baby boy in her arms. During this awesome journey, I learned a little more about the biological mom whom I've never met. I learned the biological mom was struggling financially, and this was one of the reasons she gave her baby up for adoption. I also learned that she loved her baby and uh, thought long and hard about which adoptive family she wanted to raise her, her child. I was told during the emergency C-section delivery that the mom, whose own life was in the balance, cried out, please don't let my baby die. And I learned once the biological mom had made her decision about giving up her child for adoption, she resolved to carry out her plan and not back down on her decision. She showed strength, thoughtfulness, and was determined not to disappoint the adoptive parents. Well, Lucy, how did you actually use the money? She said, I included the $200 in a note and asked the nurse to deliver the note with the money to the biological mother. 
And then she includes the, what she wrote in the card, in the note. Dear S, she doesn't put the name here, Grace Fellowship Church is committed to serving our community and showing compassion and grace to all. Jesus showed compassion and grace to all he met while here on earth and continues to do so even to this day. Please accept this gift from God to be used as you choose. Always remember, you were created in God's image and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. May God bless you and guide you in your journey through life. God bless, and then it is signed, Jesus. And then Lucy included in that card a quote, a verse from Psalm 139. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. What an awesome story. Could we give God praise for, again, just another amazing kingdom assignment where God really, really showed how he wanted that money used. Well, I don't know about you, but music is a big part of my life. I listen to music uh, probably several hours a week if they were all put together, all the bits and pieces. And most people are the same way. Perhaps uh, you have a playlist that you just love to go back to. These may be songs that get you going when you're working out, or maybe you have a playlist that you play when you're in your home, just kind of trying to chill out and relax a little bit. And it, it kind of is music that puts you in a certain mood of reflection and relieves the stress. Most athletes I know have a list of songs that they listen to before a big game to help get them ready. Now, when I mention a, a playlist, some of you over the age of 40 may not know what I'm talking about, and I understand that. In fact, some of you, like me out there, some of you maybe remember the good old days, you know, when we had eight-track tape players, right? That was the way to listen to music. There were no playlists or anything like that. In fact, I'd like to see a show of hands here of all the people, I'm talking now about godly people, mature people, wise people, who used to listen to music, like I used to listen to it, on eight tracks. Can I, wow. Do you ever kind of secretly sneak down in your basement where you have an eight track player and listen to songs again? That's the real way to listen to music, right? But no, today, honestly, there are a lot better ways and we all know that. And music is a huge part of our lives. And you probably have favorite songs that you just go back to over and over again because they help you. Maybe they're therapeutic. Maybe they just mean so much or they remind you of a certain time in your life. We begin a brand new series today called Life Songs. And what I'm going to do for the next few weeks, what we're going to do through the month of November is look at some of those incredible songs from the book of Psalms, which is a book of songs, by the way, that you definitely ought to have on your playlist. These are life songs. And over Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to look at when God blesses you, how can you be thankful for that and really bring glory to God with Thanksgiving? And then before that week, we're going to look at a song for suffering. 
Because boy, that's a reality in life. That's one of those songs you better have on your playlist, a life song that you go back to over and over. And then the week before that, we're gonna look at a song for confession. Because boy, that's one that we better have down well because we're regularly getting out of the boundaries that God has given us and, and not really honoring him in all of our ways and we need to confess that to God. And so we're gonna explore that next weekend. But this weekend, I want to kick off this Life Songs series by talking to you about a song for anxiety. I'm convinced that many people in this culture are driven by fear and anxiety. Some are fearful of natural catastrophes and events. We've had an incredibly severe hurricane season just passed. Whether you're talking about Harvey, Irma, Jose, Maria, boom, 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 four hurricanes in a row, all reached status three level or higher. And the billions of dollars of devastation and the lives lost and the chaos created is evidence of how catastrophic these natural disasters can be. On September the 19th, an earthquake hit Mexico City and the surrounding area, 7.1 on the Richter scale. Hundreds of lives lost, catastrophe, millions and millions of dollars lost that it will take to, prepare, uh, to update, upgrade and rebuild. And then there's the escalating terrorist activity that strikes fear in people and causes a lot of anxiety. I mean, just over two weeks ago, October the 14th, in Mogadishu, the capital city of Somalia, a terrorist bomber with a truck bomb killed hundreds of people. The experts are saying that that is the worst terrorist bombing since 9-11. And of course, we all heard this past week, on Tuesday, a terrorist with a rented truck in lower Manhattan killed eight people, injuring a number of others. And, and all of these things, whether you're talking natural disasters or terrorist activities that are deliberate and evil, all of these things kind of create this undercurrent of anxiety. And people think, what's going to happen to me? I mean, am I really safe? And it strikes fear in the hearts and minds of many, many people. But we don't need to look at stuff like that. I mean, my goodness, we don't need to listen to the news. Just look at our own lives, right? Perhaps for you, you've lost a loved one. And this season, you're fearful, really. You're concerned about making it through and surviving the holidays because that empty seat at the table is going to remind you of the emptiness in your heart. Or maybe you've had uh, someone you loved and that relationship turned sour and now you're <clears throat> anxious about the future and what this is gonna mean for you because your heart is broken and you're wondering how to go on. Perhaps it's a vocational question. <sighs> You'd love to just have a job that you don't hate. 
You'd love to have a job that you actually had some enjoyment going to every day and that could provide a meaningful vocation for you and, and just so you could provide for yourself and perhaps for your family. And of course, for many others, it's some health issue. You've contracted a disease or you've been diagnosed with cancer or your body is just failing you and maybe you don't even know why and that's half of the frustration. And you're fearful. And anxiety grips your soul and it adds to the stress of your life. Trust me, dear friends, fear and anxiety are the most pressing emotional issues of our day. Well, if you can identify with any of those things, I want you to know there's a character in the Bible that can really identify with you. His name is Hezekiah. He was one of the very rare and few good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he reigned from the city of Jerusalem. And here's what was going on in his life. You talk about anxiety. You talk about fear. The powerful evil king Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, had totally surrounded the city of Jerusalem and had cut off all of their supplies. And he was pressing in closer and closer with his army, getting ready for a siege. And it was in that very setting that God inspired Hezekiah to pen, to be the human author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write Psalm 46, the psalm that we're going to look at today. And if you've ever grappled with anxiety, if you're grappling with fear and that kind of emotion today, I want you to know God has a word for you because this triumphant song, by the way, it is the psalm that inspired Martin Luther, whose life we looked at last week. This is the very psalm that inspired Luther to write, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. What a powerful song for anxiety it is. The writer here, under the inspiration of God's spirit, makes three powerful declarations. And if you can make these declarations, you have the key, the antidote to overcoming anxiety. Declaration number one, I have a refuge. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these words down in addition to some other thoughts that, that strike you or that maybe you want to think about later. I have a refuge. The psalm starts off like this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Now let's pause there for a moment. The word trouble, actually there are 21 different Hebrew words believe it or not, that are translated as trouble or some related word of distress. But this particular Hebrew word, translated trouble here in the NIV, is in the plural, and it means tight places. Not just a tight place, but tight places, okay? And this writer is declaring, when you're in the tight places of life, and boy, he was, literally, armies as brutal as ever you've seen in history were ready to crush them and kill their very lives, he said, God is our refuge. The phrase ever-present is a phrase that implies from experience we know that God is faithful. 
He's been faithful in the past. He was there in the past when it looked like we were done for. When we were in the tight places back then, God came through. And so we can trust him for the future. And then he goes on in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, Selah. Now, what does that little word mean? Three times in this psalm, you're going to hear that little word, Selah. Here's what it means. Think about it. That's what it means. Anytime you're reading in the Psalter, the book of Psalms, which is a bunch of life songs, that we all desperately need at different seasons of our lives. Anytime you see that little word, Selah, it's saying reflect on this. Don't just let this go by you real fast. You think about this. Reflect on this. Now what are those verses saying in verses two and three? Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I'll bet you could figure it out. It's obviously poetic imagery. It's obviously metaphorical. But what he's describing there is when life seems to be falling apart. When everything that you thought was stable suddenly is coming unglued. When everything that's been nailed down is becoming out of control. In fact, when the Hebrews talked about the mountains, there was nothing more stable in their thinking than the mountains. Boy, they were made of rock. They were as solid as the day is long. And though everything else might pass away, it was the mountains that in the Hebrew mind was the most solid, stable, non-ephemeral thing. And so when you got mountains quaking, you got problems. When the very mountains quake, when the very waters of the sea are churning and foaming, it's describing when life is falling apart. Now let me ask you a personal question. When that's happening to you, where do you turn? There's an old saying, adversity builds character, and I think that is partially true. Adversity builds character. But what I wish we would say more often, because I think this is even more true, adversity reveals character. Ooh, that's important. You are not made in a crisis alone. Your character is revealed in that crisis. Let me tell you something. When your life seems to be falling apart and everything you thought you would depend on, whether it was that relationship, that person, that job, that money, that situation, your own health, to get you through, when that seems to be shaking, Where do you turn? The addict turns to his needle. The alcoholic turns to his bottle. The narcissist, I suppose, turns to himself. But Hezekiah declares here, I have a refuge. And he turns to the Lord our God. And if you can say that, my friend, you're already well on the way to a great antidote for anxiety. Trust me. I have a refuge. Can you declare it? But there's another declaration that the psalmist here makes. Hezekiah says, I have a river. I have a river. Okay? 
He goes on in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here's that word again. Selah. Think about it. Think about that. There is a river. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's really a double entendre. It's really got a double meaning here. You see, Jerusalem is one of the few ancient and very important cities that wasn't founded on a river. Have you ever thought about this? All the ancient cities... Most of the significant cities of the world were founded on rivers. Ever thought about that? Babylon was founded on the Euphrates. Nineveh founded on the Tigris. Rome was founded on the Tiber River, right? Ancient cities, all the cities of Egypt were founded on the Great Nile River. And then it's true even in more modern times, right? London was founded on the Thames River. Uh, Amsterdam on the Amstel River. Hey, right here in Albany. Albany founded on the Hudson River. All the great cities of the world. Dwaynesburg founded on the Norman Kill, right? All the great cities founded on a river, right? But not Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem. And Sennacherib knew that. And so his battle plan was, hey, I'm just going to sit right where I am. He had cut off all the supply lines, but mostly he knew, see, there's no water. He didn't see any river going by. And he thought, I'll just sit it out here, and when their water runs out, they'll be done, and we'll just walk right in. But what Sennacherib did not know is that there was a river. What Sennacherib did not know is that Hezekiah had pulled off one of the great architectural feats of history. He had gone out realizing there's no major natural water supply for the city of Jerusalem. And should this very thing ever occur, he had gone out and he had had his architects design a tunnel that went all the way from those underwater aquifers of Gihon, those natural springs outside the city wall, with pure fresh water, and they had channeled that through a tunnel to an aqueduct underground right into the city where it fed the pool of Siloam. Sennacherib knew nothing about that. And so Hezekiah, when he makes this statement inspired by God, it's a double meaning. Yes, there's natural water, and H2O is essential to physical life, but the double meaning is this. Living water is essential to spiritual life. Jesus struck up a conversation in John chapter 4 with a woman at a well in Sychar in Samaria. As they talked along, they started talking about Water And Jesus at one point says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. The woman's apparently and, and understandably a bit confused about that. 
And Jesus goes on to explain it. He says, whoever drinks of this water, from this well here in Sychar, is gonna thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst, but the water that I give will be a well of water springing up to everlasting life. Now let me ask you a question. Can you say, I have a refuge can you declare today personally, I have a river. Have you ever tasted living water? It's amazing. It is really amazing. Now maybe you, like that woman with whom Jesus was talking by the well, maybe your life is a bit of a mess today. She had a string of broken marriages and she was now living with a guy she wasn't married to and I'm sure she was ostracized and ridiculed and felt marginalized in the community. Maybe, maybe you're feeling a bit like her, like life is kind of tattered. You, you need to hear the words of Jesus. There's living water and when you drink of it, you can get that thirst in your soul quenched once and for all. Or maybe you're different. Maybe you feel like you're a high roller. Man, life's going great. The money's pouring in. You got the boat. You got the house. You got the second house, the third house, the vacation home. You take exotic vacations. You got all the right clothes. You go to all the right parties. And boy, life is just cruising. But when your head hits the pillow, Maybe you haven't shared it even with your closest friends, but it's a different story. You know there's something empty, something missing inside. And I would simply say to you, taste and see. Taste and see the Lord is good. Get a drink of that living water. And let me tell you something, friend. I've discovered, and many others in this place have discovered, that when you drink of that water, it quenches that thirst in your soul, and you begin to revel in the living water of God. I've got a refuge. I've got a river. But there's a third declaration. As he's surrounded by enemies, as the enemies are pressing in, Hezekiah can say, I have a revelation. Oh, he doesn't say those words exactly. But that's essentially what he's talking about. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Catch this part. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Now, wait just a minute here. This is like a disconnect. Come on, Hezekiah. Help me out here, buddy. Help me out. You got the enemies all around. You're pressed in on every side. It looks like there's no hope. There's at least, at least 185,000 of them. Brutal soldiers with a reputation so bad, they practiced brutality that was unimaginable. And they're all out there. And you can see them all around the city. Supplies are cut off. <laughs> and Hezekiah says, be still. Right. 
That is so counterintuitive. That is so ironic. That is so contrary to what we would naturally do. The word be still means cease striving. Cease trying to make this work in your own strength. Cease trying to really work it all out and frenetically find the answer. Calm down would be another way. Cease striving. Be still and know. The word know speaks of a revelation of God. You need some insight here. What you need is not a better weapon. What you need is not even a a battle strategy necessarily. What you need is to know who God really is. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors from the past, been dead for many years, but has some amazing writings. Tozer said in his little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he makes a statement that to me, to me, is one of the most profound statements anyone has ever made, any theologian. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, you may have to see law that one a little bit, right? You may have to think about that one a little bit to really grasp that and what he means. But that is so profound. And the more you think about that, believe me, the more profound it becomes. It may take you getting to the point where all you have is God until you realize that God is all you really need. Every inadequacy, every challenge you have, every bit of anxiety and fear is somehow related to an inadequate view of who God really is. Now, I know that's a big statement, but I'll stand by that. To put it differently, Christians should never be panic people. Or to put it differently still, the more we learn about who God really is, our great God, the more we learn about who he is, the more anxiety should not be our default mode. Because we realize that God has got it. And God's working even in the midst of the things that seem the worst, he's working for our good and for his glory. Well, this is kind of interesting to me how this all came down with Sennacherib here and Hezekiah. Let me pull this up, if I can, on my phone. 2 Kings chapter 19 is the story, and I urge you to go home and read that in its full context there. 2 Kings chapter 19 tells this whole story. But here's the deal. Here's the footnote. Here's the uh, cliff notes on it. Sennacherib begins to trash talk. He really does. He begins to talk about because he doesn't know there's a river. He doesn't know there's a refuge. He has no idea about that. And he certainly doesn't have a clue about the revelation of who God really is and what God can do. And so he's trash talking. He's talking big. And he sends messengers in with a letter basically saying, Hezekiah, it's over, dude. 
Give up. This God that you think you're trusting in, listen, he can't deliver you. And I can give a resume of people who, who thought that they were going to get away from us, but they haven't. And so he sends a trash talk sort of letter, very intimidating. 2 Kings 19 verse 14 reads, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. It's really not just a prayer. He's really getting into worship here. And then this isn't on the screens, I don't think, but it says, give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. And he goes on, hey, a lot of what he says is true. Yeah, the kings who thought they were over, gonna come, overcome Sennacherib, they have been destroyed. But he says, now, O Lord, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And then verse 20 says this. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to, Mo, to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And if you go on and read the full story, you'll see how God miraculously intervened and with great power gave the victory to Hezekiah and the people of that southern kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what you may be facing today, what's striking fear and anxiety in your heart. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you are just a sinful, pathetic person if you have anxiety. Oh, no, no, no. I have anxiety. I have fears. That's a natural part of life, I believe. Everybody I know has some sort of fear, insecurity, anxiety. What I'm saying to you today is that the more you learn about God, your refuge, your river, the more you learn about the revelation of who he is, the more you're gonna be able to navigate through all of those situations in life that tend to cause you to be afraid. And what you're gonna find is that increasingly, you're gonna find that that ever-present help in trouble, the one who got you through in the past is gonna get you through again and you will hold on to him and trust in him. That's what I see in the mature believers in this church. Now, I was really blessed this week. I uh, get this magazine. I didn't ask for this magazine. This happens to us preachers, I guess. I get signed up for a magazine. I guess the company just sends it, and uh, it's called Bible Study, and I usually read an article or two in here. It's actually a very good periodical, but even though I, I don't pay for it, and it just keeps coming. And on this one, I saw a picture of some football players, okay? These football players, and they're from the Philadelphia Eagles. Do we have a picture? Yeah, we got a picture of these guys. And I thought, what, what are they doing on the front of Bible Study Magazine? And so I was so curious, I had to open it up and read the article. And it's such an impressive article. 
And it has everything to do with what we're talking about today, especially that last point, I have a revelation. All right? And I guess if you're an Eagles fan, you'll really be thrilled about this. The Eagles are 7-1 and one right now, by the way. They're having one of the better years they've had in a long time. And that's what intrigued me even more because they're really riding a wave of success right now. The article reads, Bible studies are common throughout the National Football League. What distinguishes the Eagles group is the players' uncompromising pursuit of biblical truth, deep theology, genuine accountability, and gospel-fueled charity. They're not interested in status quo spirituality. And then let me just quote quickly some of the guys that are on the picture there, all right? Number 88 up there on the screen says, his name is Trey Burton, wonderful offensive player. He says, we love the word. We could talk about it all day long. Or how about Nick Foles? He's the only guy not in uniform up there and in some sweats. Previous starting quarterback for the Eagles, now still on the roster after being traded back to them. Obviously, it fills your heart. It changes you. Reading scripture allows you to grow in wisdom and humbles you. Or how about number 42 on the screen? Chris Maragos. If I want to outpour as an athlete, I have to intake the right things. If I want to grow in the Lord, I have to intake the right things as well. So it's extremely important to read the Bible and grow in the grace of the Lord and read about what Jesus did on the cross. Just a couple more. Zach Ertz, he's number 86. In order for me to consistently grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to be in the living word. No matter what season I'm going through in life, it allows me to learn about the grace we all received and what Jesus Christ did for all of us. And then finally, Carson Wentz. He's number 11, the starting quarterback for the Eagles, and one of the highest-rated quarterbacks in the entire NFL right now, okay? He says, the Bible is really the secret to life. If you're not rooted in God's word, this world will eat you up. In the NFL, you don't have to look far for a temptation or distraction. You'll go astray so fast. I'm thankful that God has given us his word. His word is true. He's got a pretty good track record in keeping his promises. Amazing article. I wish I could read you more of it. I was so pleased to see that these players in the NFL have got a refuge. They got a river. <laughs> and they got a revelation. They go to God's word regularly and take it seriously and drink deeply from that living water straight from his word. Is that you? If they need it, I'll bet you need it too. So when you face that fearful thing, that thing that strikes fear in your heart this week, remember you got a refuge, you got a river and you got a revelation. God, thank you so much for this Psalm 46 that is bursting with encouragement and joy and defiance of the enemies of God. I pray that we would drink deeply this week and that as we do, we would navigate all the things in life that make us so anxious and fearful. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.